Okay, well, the room is quietening down, so I think this means it's the moment to start. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all uh, to this event, which, uh, and first of all, to thank Andy for putting uh, the panel together. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'm sure you are too. Um, the format is that John, first of all, uh, will kick us off and we'll talk for about 20 minutes, uh, followed by Andy and then our two discussants, Kate first, I think, and that's the order on the programme anyway, and uh, Julian second. Um, I'd particularly like to uh, welcome our speakers. Um, John, as you know, is the Eastman Visiting Professor at Oxford for this academic year, and we're very pleased to have him with us. Normally he, he's at Princeton, of course, and has written extensively on our topic of global liberal order. And uh, just to plagiarise, his bumper sticker is, you know, an order that's easy to join and uh, harder to overturn. So that's his sort of bumper sticker um, explanation for... <laughs> Uh, Andy, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and Andy's bumper sticker, you need a much larger car, I think, and it might, it might go around the, the side of the door as well. But I thought about it. Is it the liberal order? Um, and also, isn't there a great deal of contestation in the system that we need to factor into this? In other words, a slightly more pessimistic view, perhaps, of uh, what this order might be and the types of contestation that go on within it and what the implications of that contestation are. Um, and then we'll, as I say, we'll follow, uh, so 20 minutes, 20 minutes, and then Kate for up to 10, 5 to 10 minutes of discussant role, and then Julian Gruen, um, also 5 to 10 uh, discussant role, and then it's up to you. Um, comments, questions um, will be gladly entertained from Let's get Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, Thank you, Andy. This is great. It's great to be at Oxford this year. I'm loving it and enjoying meeting uh, new colleagues and uh, confronting new ideas and uh, new mixes of, of arguments and debate. So it's terrific. And, and I think today is, is an example of this where I come across the Atlantic with ideas and I'm going to find a new setting to, to, uh, to uh, evaluate uh, these arguments. And so uh, that is a, a terrific uh, opportunity for me. Um, I'm, I'm here not to either praise or bury the liberal world order, uh, although you will probably find me as the one arguing uh, that there is uh, still a liberal order that's, that's alive, if not well, but more than that, that the problems that beset a world liberal order, if we can use that term, uh, are problems of success. Uh, if you want to boil it down, problems of rising states and cascading problems of interdependence, both features of what you would expect if you create a liberal world order. You want uh, problems like that. They are problems that suggest that the system is doing things that you want it to do. And I'll kind of try to make that argument as we go forward. But they are, uh, it's an argument embedded in a larger debate about power shifts in the, the world system, the relationship between power and ideas and institutions and values. Uh, and I think uh, there's a great agreement that the, the system is in transition, in crisis, less agreement as to what type of transition and what type of crisis. Where there's probably widest agreement is that there's a, a, a widespread power transition going on, a global power transition, power is shifting, material capabilities are moving, uh, the places of dynamism are moving, there's a diffusion away from 
from uh, the United States. Uh, the unipolar distribution of power uh, is shifting to a more diffused, multi-something order, not multipolar technically. Barry Buzan would, would, uh, would uh, chastise you for describing it that way. P multipolar has a very technical uh, 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 definition. We aren't seeing that, at least not yet. But moving away from concentration, certainly. Uh, we, we see rising and declining of states. Uh, but there's less agreement on the consequences for international order, the underlying if you, the substructure, the, the material capability, the distribution of power shifting, but the political formation, what, what, what lies on top of that, is, is something that we're looking at. How is it shifting? What are the consequences of power shifts? And there's less agreement on that. There is an argument on the side from, from scholars who are saying that, that, that the consequences are quite worrisome. Uh, scholars such as Paul Kennedy, Robert Gilpin, E.H. Carr have all warned us that power transitions can be dangerous, generating conflict and even war. When rising states rise, they seek to reorganize the system to suit their interests. And that is the underlying dynamic that we see uh, uh, unfolding. It's a, it's a structural argument. It's an argument that has three or four claims. One, that, that power determines order in some sense, that global rules and institutions reflect the interests of the dominant state. Over time, that dominant state declines. Sorry, it happens. Thirdly, that in the context of that declining power, there is uh, a legitimacy crisis. Governance institutions don't have the power backers, the patrons they did in the past, and dysfunctions and illegitimacy creates crisis. And then finally, rising states, new states that are newly empowered uh, because of growth and technology and so forth, struggle to assert their own will. Uh, after all, again, they have now not just new interests, different interests, but power to pursue and push those interests. And so you either get the establishment of something new that's very different from the past, or you get, get uh, a dysfunctional behavior. You get spoilers and free riders and, and a kind of general decay of the system. But the question I think we need to ask is what sort of order do rising states, non-Western developing states want, particularly China, I think? How deep are the divides between the West and the liberal international order on the one hand and the rest on the other? Is it a struggle over authority, as I argue, or is it a deeper struggle over the basic principles, values, norms of international order? Put simply, when the world is less American and less Western, will it be less liberal? My view is that the power transition is not triggering a fundamental struggle over liberal world order, even as it diffuses power and authority away from the West. Indeed, what is most striking to me, looking at the past decade at China and rising states such as Brazil, India, South Korea, is that these are states that are rising up within rather than around the rules and institutions built over the last 60 years such as the UN, the IMF, the Bretton Woods institutions, and a variety of other less famous uh, international regimes. Put differently, the rise of China and non-Western developing countries is, is creating more rather than less demand for liberal internationalism, defined as, and this is important, openness and at least loosely rule-based order. Openness and at least ru a loosely rule-based order. A, a type of order that can be contrasted with what? Well, with empire, with spheres of influence, with blocks, and so forth, open and loosely rule-based, with certainly lots of different variations of that. And part of the, the, the literature I circulated today where I tried to get at 
different types of liberal order. I even borrowed Bill Gates's uh, uh, technique, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. If 2.0 is liberal hegemonic, which I suggest we've been living through, uh, the question I pose is, what is 3.0? Uh, although, of course, the, the question is still open if you're going to get that or you're going to move away from that particular type of, of logic that, that is evolving. But I try to argue that, indeed, there is a growing constituency for liberal internationalism. The struggle today is more about voice and authority. It is about who sits at the table, who decides. It's about revising the political hierarchy of states, but it is not about uh, debates over rival visions of modernity or even rival ideologies of order. Why do I argue this? Well, let me start with some, some arguments that aggregate in that direction and then step back and think a little bit more about power and change. One argument, and I think I have five arguments that, 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 that are trying to, to bolster this, this overall view about evolution and and transformation as opposed to crisis and breakdown. Um, one, and perhaps my oldest argument, nearest and dearest to me, uh, is, the, is, is an argument about the old order. If this is a crisis, about, a crisis of the old order, well, what was the old order? Well, that order, which I have spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, is one that is different than old orders that previous rising states have confronted. Think of rising states looking up to see what they confront and at each moment in history across the centuries, that thing has differed. And it's differed in, in ways that matter for, for how rising states think about their interests, their restraints, their, their, their uh, opportunities, uh, uh, and, and what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, and it's a more formidable order. It's an order that's more deeply rooted. It's more expansive. It's really, in many ways, the first global order. It's rooted in in democracy and capitalism and, and uh, liberalism. And uh, it is, as Rosemary said, and she stole my bumper sticker, <laughs> uh, easy to, easier to join and harder to overturn than past orders. And there are four characteristics, I think, that, that, uh, that one wanted, would want to look at and appreciate to try to make an argument about what, what, the, what the old uh, status quo uh, is. One is integration capacity. Look at how this order over the last 60 years has digested so many states in one way or another, even as that digestion has changed the, the nature of the order itself. Uh, Germany and Japan found anchors to solve and, and, and sometimes rehabilitate themselves inside the confines of this, this order. Uh, and then, of course, in different cohorts along the way, you have gotten different groups transforming, making political transitions, economic transitions, Eastern Europe being perhaps the most recent, but East Asia perhaps being the more, even con more consequential. Uh, so integration, finding ways to uh, uh, dock, so to speak, think of a, a spaceship, you can, they're docking, the universal docking capacity is, is higher than, than other orders. You can find ways to get into it in various ways. Uh, secondly, shared leadership. There is a kind of elasticity to, to leadership. Uh, uh, look at the way it's the, the G7, G8 has morphed into the G20, uh, the, the different venues and platforms for, for voice. Uh, it's a, a honeycomb of different uh, uh, rooms and platforms and, and decks and lookout towers. There's a lot of architecture that allows for, for multiple actors to, to be a, a, at the high table, to be 
to be uh, able to speak. Um, and so that's important. And, and that speaks highly of the view that it's not an empire. This is not the American system in some fundamental sense. Thirdly, sharing the spoils of modernity. That is to say, uh, you can be in the semi-periphery, perhaps even the periphery, but certainly the semi-periphery, and, and do well. There's opportunities for advancement, for, for, for uh, uh, dividends uh, from integration and so forth that have allowed for, in fact, this kind of dynamic system that we're now trying to figure out to happen in the first place. And fourthly, and speaks to Rosemary's point about, about variety and difference inside of this order, which I, I do appreciate and I learned from, from her and others about that as well, but the ability to accommodate different strategies of development. And when you think about the 60-year period and the expansive trans-intercontinental system of liberalism, capitalism, democracy, you see that there have been different kinds of, of developmental strategies and political projects within it. I think of three big, heavy uh, alternatives. The, we'll call it the neoliberal or the laissez-faire uh, fundamentalist kind that popped up in the Anglo-American world in the 80s uh, uh, and has still a great deal of, of, of reach. Uh, the, the embedded liberal or social democratic uh, variety of development, which was much more in place after World War II. It's where US, the US and Britain uh, debated monetary order, Keynes and White, and the, 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 the attempt to reconcile openness with the social safety net and the welfare state that was emerging separately but now had an international component. Uh, it stays alive in Europe. It's around uh, clearly in, in, in rising uh, BRIC states and other states that that aren't interested in neoliberal and are looking for something else, but see an internationalist system as fundamental to, uh, to their advancement. And then a third, we'll call it developmental statism. It, you see it, it, it's the famous strategy in East Asia of the NIC, of, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, NICs, I guess you would call them, the, the tigers in, in East Asia in the, in the 80s and onward, uh, which, and one have to kind of reflect upon this, were at least grudgingly accommodated inside of this system uh, with the view that it would lead to political transitions, perhaps, or that it would, would itself uh, uh, evolve in, in various ways towards a, a more general kind of commitment to, to operating within a kind of common set of rules uh, to govern the world economy. So that's my first point. It's the argument about the old order. Uh, uh, if you, uh, the liberal Leviathan, I spent some time thinking about trying to uh, uh, describe it, its logic, its, its institutions, its strategies, its bargains, and its future. And uh, I think that it, it, it um, creates a kind of huge structure that is not uh, easy to, to, to overturn in the way that we've seen orders overturned in the past through great power wars leading to these uh, Hall of Mirror moments uh, at Versailles where a new template is put down. It, it becomes very difficult, I think, to, to think about changing order in those old terms. There, yes, order will change, but not in that iconic uh, Big Bang kind of way. And it's partly because this order is, is evolving, spreading, and it's, it's, there's not either a war that can abolish it, what we hope, or a kind of uh, uh, a superficial connection to one power that makes it very vulnerable. The second argument is about uh, 
uh, China and non-Western rising states uh, and their interests. And I would just say at a very general level, um, uh, 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 the argument here is really that rising states want what liberal internationalism has. And w what does it have? Well, it has openness, as I suggested. That is to say, states have access to other societies for trade, for investment, for knowledge, for resources. It, you want openness, uh, 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 for sure. But secondly, you want rules and institutions for, for, for at least protection, liberal protectionism, we might call it. Rising states again, gaining wealth and standing, they want more rule-based order rather than less uh, to protect, if nothing else, their new equities. Rules, liberal, the liberal ascendancy in the West, what, 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 what is the story there? The, and I would say at least one of the grand narratives is that it wasn't really about the um, realization of a set of Western values uh, so much as a, as a development in the context of very competitive pluralistic societies and interstate rivalries, a set of institutions and rights and and uh, including property rights, perhaps very importantly, for protecting uh, states and societies and groups inside of those societies that were gaining uh, uh, equities of various sorts. Uh, Western liberal values were played a role, but it was a much more instrumental kind of uh, a commitment to finding structures that would make tomorrow as predictable as possible. Alan Ryan's uh, new book on uh, the history of liberalism, in the very first pages, he, he has this very interesting observation. He doesn't really pursue it very far, but he says something like, um, across the, this era, uh, uh, various kinds of social actors wanted to find social institutions that would allow them to know that in 10 years certain things would likely be in place that they wanted to be in place. How do you make tomorrow as fixed and predictable and likely to be what you want as possible? Well, you, have, you need institutions. Uh, and uh, so this is more of a C.B. McPherson, an Ernest Gellner kind of view of liberalism. It's, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't end at the the water's edge or the civilizational edges as much as other narratives about liberalism. Thirdly, China and rising non-Western states are not a block. This is the more prosaic point about, about what are the nature of the, the great uh, struggles, what are the divisions in the system that are leading to the politics that we're witnessing today. On the one hand, all the capitalist states are uh, are, are, are all the rising states are capitalist and most are, cap uh, most are democratic. Yet they have very different interests and agendas in energy and trade and regionalism and security. Brazil has been uh, as worried and perhaps more so about China uh, and its economic penetration as the United States. That's new. And if you're uh, an American who's engaging uh, intellectuals in Brazil, it's kind of a relief. Uh, uh, um, Worried about what? Deindustrialization uh, from, from China, worried about exchange rates and so forth. Uh, uh, you saw uh, uh, the US Treasury Secretary a year or two ago and, and uh, his counterpart uh, uh, issuing a, a statement about Chinese exchange rates. Uh, complex alignments. Uh, um, Obama in Brazil a few, a year ago or more, uh, um, in a, in a conversation with, with Dilma, uh, there was a little mouse in the room that, that whispered this to me, 
apparently uh, he asked, what is your agenda? And, uh, and, and she said, I have four items on my agenda for Brazil, infrastructure, clean energy, education, and science and technology. And Obama said, well, those are my, <laughs> my, my agenda items as well. And it, it sort of is evocative of the point that in this, this world politics era, the problems of democracy, of development, of stabilizing, of inequality, of making your system work, as opposed to of great visions, the geopolitical visions of a new world order, that's, it's, the, it's, it's that that is the, the, the grist of, of the struggles. And it's because more of the world is entering into this single system. Um, fourthly, it's important to look at the wider global power transition. There's a lot of talk about BRICS. It's, it, it became very famous as a, as a kind of glib tool uh, for trying to figure out what's, what's happening. But there's a wider power transition. Uh, what I, uh, and really it was that when we were talking in the fall and at the British Academy that this sort of crystallized in my mind a kind of global middle class. Uh, it's not just India and Brazil, but it's also Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, Turkey, Australia, uh, uh, Canada, uh, all, all countries in the G20, countries that are in one way or another rising up and, uh, and advancing uh, in various ways, all seeking a greater voice uh, and tending to exhibit what I would call stakeholder strategies, which means pushing for more, more multilateral cooperation. Uh, I talked to a Canadian diplomat a couple years ago asking, you know, what's, what's on Canadian foreign policy agenda? And he said, well, same as it's always been trying to make the United States act more multilaterally. And now you have a, not just a, a soloist singing that song to America, you have a whole choir singing that song to the world. I mean, it's a, it's a new, broader constituency saying we need to do things multilaterally. That has to have some consequence. Well, what does that mean, stakeholder strategy, influencing world politics through agenda setting, bridge building, coalition diplomacy? South Korea, for me, is the greatest example of this. It's the poster child of this kind of strategy of working the system. Uh, we've heard the term from uh, past President Lee of, uh, of global Korea. Uh, I've written a tiny book that just came out uh, on, on Korea uh, and the liberal order, which tries to chronicle and make sense of this, this strategy, hosting the G20 summit, the nuclear safety summit, uh, which is near and dear to, to Obama's heart, and uh, by the way, China is very active in that summit and in an, another uh, uh, G5 uh, nuclear uh, uh, caucus. Uh, uh, development for a clean energy, sustainable de development, these are kind of bridge building. Uh, Korea is the first recipient of ODA to now be a, a benefactor. So this is a story that is consistent with the narrative I'm trying to build today. Finally, fifth, there is no grand authoritarian model of maternity as an alternative. Uh, China has its own approach, it's evolving, but it is not a model for the world. And I mean this in several senses. In the, in the sense that if, if, if the caricature of it were to be taken seriously, of a kind of mercantilist state-to-state approach, it only works if, if, if everybody else in the world is, is liberal, because it's a spoiler strategy. If everybody did it, we call that a, a global shutdown of, of, of protectionism. So it can't be sustainable as a model uh, of, of, of world politics. 
and indeed, it's not, and I don't think the Chinese see it as that in that way. It's, it's an opportunistic strategy. It's not a model, and China does not have a model, nor does Russia, nor does India, nor does Brazil, nor do really other countries of a, a kind of huge agenda for global economic and political betterment. There isn't another ideology out there. And, 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 uh, and there isn't really an attempt to pursue this. And, and uh, there are reasons why there aren't. And, and that brings me back to my thesis. But China seems, moreover, to be mo moving closer rather than further away from the center of the world economy. Think about uh, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the, 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 the ideology of the new, the new international economic order, which was a very important moment in the world economy that was, in some sense, the You'd have to say that is the model for what might be an alternative to my thesis um, of a kind of coalition of states with a, with a very different value, set of values and, and that trickle down to different kinds of institutions. Um, but China has moved away from that kind of language, uh, seen uh, as it was in the past in party documents and government documents for in calling for a new international economic order. Beginning in 2007, a gradual shift for calls for reform uh, with language such as more reasonable arrangements, just, ju more just arrangements. So it is a normative appeal for, for making the system more just. But a lot of what that means in practice is giving China more voice uh, in the ruling, in the voice in existing institutions. And when I asked my Chinese friends, what is the wish list for reform in the global economy, uh, and China's agenda within that movement, uh, it, three things always come up. One is greater role in the IMF and World Bank, voting share, uh, and so forth. Secondly, more influence in leadership forums like the G20. And thirdly, over the long term, internationalization of the renminbi, which would be, uh, in certain geopolitical ways, a game changer, uh, given how the dollar has played a, a hegemonic role in the background for the United States. But these are all stakeholder goals. And indeed, to reinforce my thesis, uh, for China to get a world that would see the Chinese currency as a reserve currency with all that that means uh, requires a, a domestic agenda in China for deepening property rights, rule of law, business law, financial markets to, to make it credible. So to go up you have to go down. By up, I mean authority and, and uh, role in the world economy. You have to build a framework domestically that, that makes you viable in that regard. So th those are arguments I, I would make to suggest that we do have a kind of uh, a tra transitional kind of dynamic at, at work here. Uh, stepping back, just thinking about that, reinforcing the way of looking at these struggles over world order, how do we think about those dynamics, it seems like there are three types of struggles or clashes that one can see and hypothesize as important. One uh, would be power clashes between rising states and, and existing status quo leaders. This is old. This is the story that we hear all the time. It's, it's very real, and it's real in East Asia now. It's dangerous. There are security dilemmas. There are maritime struggles that will be very real, and it's going to take uh, diplomacy, and, and, and we, it's another discussion than what we're just talking about today, but that's very important. It's, but we know that. That's an, an old struggle. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it's there. But it's not about liberal order. 
A second type of clash is over principles and values. And this is more about the, the, what, what I, the English school might call the pr primary uh, 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 institutions of, of world politics, sovereignty and norms about intervention. R2P gets a little bit into this domain. But the deep debate about power and new powers and principles and norms, for me, I don't see it. I don't see it as the driver. Um, uh, as important as, say, uh, Charlie Cupshun, uh, who sees, you know, you know when it's just natural that a newly powerful state will want to do things differently. But how so? The third type of clash is over authority. That's what I've suggested is at work here. These are important uh, clashes. And it's, it's, there's substantive implications, of course, but it's about rights and privileges. Uh, to the old orders, about how to reshuffle the governance system of a system that you are integrating mutually into. So to me, the struggle today is more about whether, is, is, is over whether we, uh, it's not over whether we live in an open rule-based order, but uh, how we, uh, we, we govern it. And there it is a crisis, but it's a, to make this point a little bit more, uh, it, it's what I would call, it's, it's not an E.H. Carr crisis, it's a Carl Polanyi crisis. That's how I would put it. An E.H. Carr crisis is a moment when the, the crisis of liberal order is really a crisis where realists step forward and say, liberal idealists, uh, you're wrong. It's not going to work, and it, we can see that it didn't work. Uh, it's a breakdown of order that reveals the deeper forces of anarchy and realpolitik. It's not what we see today. It's more a Carl Polanyi crisis, where liberal governance is troubled because of dilemmas and long-term shifts in the order uh, that can only be solved by, by more liberal order, uh, by rethinking, rebuilding, extending that order. In effect, it's liberal order, uh, the results of liberal order, open interdependence, rule-based driven outcomes. Uh, it's because it's been so successful in that sense in creating these two dilemmas of how do you deal with a changing power with rising states? And how do you deal with cascading interdependence, global warming? How does liberal order deal with that? Well, well, good luck. But that is a, a anybody who says we're going to deal with it in a non-liberal internationalist setting that's going to be more functional or more legitimate as, a, as an order to solve those kind of problems, I, I, I would like to hear that argument. So in this regard, I'll, I'll in some sense, uh, end with, um, uh, with, a, with a kind of coming back to the United States, uh, you're hearing a very American view, I, I suspect some of you are thinking. Uh, I would say that in, the, uh, in, the, in America's moment when it was performing at the highest level on the international stage after World War II, it was thinking about international order in a kind of post-New Deal framework that was, draw, that was drawing on the ideas of, of, of progressive liberalism and the New Deal accomplishments and later in the 60s and 70s, the, the great society. But the domestic uh, progressive vision of, of liberal, li liberalism had an international, uh, uh, an international variant or, or extension. Uh, and it was, at, at a one level, model development. It was more social democratic. It was embedded liberal, as John Ruggie would call it. Uh, and it was, I would argue, a more appealing and 
and uh, expansive ideology of liberal, liberal internationalism than you have today, which has narrowed, on, in, even as liberal internationalism has expanded and in the constituencies, the American vision of it has narrowed to a more uh, economistic, uh, uh, more uh, fundamentalist kind of vision. But progressive era, the New Deal, the Great Society were always, in some sense, factories for ideas, the international uh, uh, components. You see a little bit of this in, in Barack Obama's second inaugural address where he was getting at these ideas. So I think that the challenge, it seems, for liberal order going forward is to re return to and recover uh, those, those ideas, which I think speak more to questions of inequality, to sharing wealth, to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to the liberal vision where liberalism and, and democracy have that kind of John Dewey idea of being an experiment that doesn't end. It's a, it, it's, what is it? It's not a set of frameworks that solve all problems, but it's a methodology for uh, bringing people to the table to solve problems that will never go away. So in that sense, I think the DNA of liberal internationalism has to be recovered to solve the problems of liberal internationalism. Okay, Thank so you. thanks very much, John. Um, and we'll turn immediately to Andrew Hurrell. Um, and as everybody, I think, in the room knows, Andy's written extensively on questions of global order. Um, including the 2007 book and then a, a variety of articles since that time. Um, in case there's somebody in the room that doesn't know Andrew Hurrell, he's the Montague Burton Professor of International Relations here at Oxford and a fellow of Balliol College. Hand over to you. Now. Great. Thanks ever so much. Um, actually, it was um, Rosemary who sort of suggested. Um, we had a little brief um, sort of two times ten minutes um, talking about these issues in October at the British Academy, and it was Rosemary who said, we must do, it, do something like that in Oxford. Um, and so this is the, the something like that in Oxford. Um, and it's great to, to have John. When uh, I sort of set this up, I said, uh, great to have a sort of good, really sort of big statement from you, John, about you know, how you're seeing these issues. And he said, oh, well, maybe I'll do 15, 20 minutes. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased you, in a sense, you did more than that, and you've given us this great statement. Um, of, in a sense, how you see, uh, see things. So I'm going to kind of just lay out um, some thoughts of my own. Um, in a sense, they don't challenge lots of things, but they do kind of cumulatively add up to a picture that is a little less um, optimistic, that is a little bit more, um, which would lay more emphasis, I guess, on the range of factors, and particularly the range of factors together which I think have a great capacity to disturb what are, in many ways, both materially and in terms of the logics of power, and of course in many ways also in terms of normative logics, the kind of impeccable logics of the liberal order. Um, there are a range of things, I think, with a capacity to disrupt and disturb them, and that's what I'm going to say something about. Let me begin with a few words on, in a sense, you know, how do we see the type of transition, the type of crisis um, that we're in. Um, well, my own sort of way of capturing that um, in rather sort of inevitably simplistic ways is to say um, that we face a, a whole range of kind of classic Westphalian challenges, but we face them within a context marked by strong post-Westphalian features. So 
the Westphalian challenges and clearly uh, power shifts, rising powers, um, all of the sort of geopolitics, which has come once more into uh, very common popular discussion around them. Um, but also a few other things sort of lurking um, in the background. Um, the power of nationalism in almost all of the big and major states of the system, something that in the 1990s, um, neither popular nor academic debate wanted to focus on a lot. You know, nationalism as a problem was really a problem of ethnic conflict. It was in these odd places in the world where lots of terrible things were happening. That's where we focused our attention on sort of nationalism. Well, we should have focused on those things, but we shouldn't have forgotten the continued and I think maybe reasserted power of nationalism in all of the core states um, of the system. Um, the return, under, this is under the Westphalian challenges bit, of, of sort of balance of power thinking um, in, again, the policies and foreign policies of almost all of the major states of the system in quite a, a striking way. Um, you know, Tony Blair repeatedly got up and said, well, you know, balance of power politics, all that stuff, you know, just as many, many other people have said before, that belongs to history. You know, we, we, we buried that long ago. It has no relevance in the 21st century. Well, you don't make much sense of what is going on in terms of the foreign policy of the major players in the system without thinking in pretty straightforwardly and traditional balance of power uh, terms, um, whether it's the foreign policy of second tier states, either vis-a-vis -vis the US or vis-a-vis -vis each other, um, or in terms of, say, how the US thinks about its policy um, in in Asia. Um, the quite, again, quite striking return of kind of nuclear weapons, again, not as something that just lives in a box marked sort of rogue states and sort of radical problem people, but as something where you really can't talk about the structure of major power relations uh, without once more sort of thinking um, about nuclear weapons, about well, what is the role of deterrence in the contemporary system, and so on. So a whole cluster of sort of classic, if you want to call it, Westphalian big power challenges um, on the negative side, also a return on the more positive side of old, more old-fashioned ideas of order. So, well, maybe, you know, all of the great institutions, multilateralism, maybe all of the sort of the new governance that people spoke about in the 1990s, networks, governance beyond the state, all of that sort of stuff. Well, maybe that's got a role, but in this sort of revived big power world, Shouldn't we also be thinking about the potential role of big power concerts, bringing the new major players together to try and reach some agreements on the basic sort of structuring logics of the system, you know, what each other's interests really are, how to avoid uh, conflict, and so on. So, you know, the, the, the old-style game of international relations, um, which, of course, many people in the 1990s said is all kind of outdated, it's gone, it's not what you really ought to be doing, well, there's a lot of it about. Um, but, as I say, I think, at least for me, um, a lot of those things are taking place in a context um, which is very, very different. And here again, I, I fully kind of agree with a great deal of what John um, said. Um, globalization does um, make an enormous um, difference. And partly, of course, because it does feed into power itself. Um, you know, how did we get shifting power? We got shifting power exactly as Adam Smith had predicted, because of the very successes of liberal globalization. Globalization didn't push power out, it just pushed power 
um, around. But more importantly, um, globalization comes home. You know, what that means is that what happens inside uh, states affects in a very deep way. So we have this great debate about interdependence and conflict, 1914 uh, revisited and all of that. Um, it's not just, as the sort of realists had it, that interdependence is bad because it provides, in a sense, more opportunities to clash. It's rather that interdependence brings the sources of things we need to debate and discuss about much, much more deeply into how we organize societies. So kind of classically, how do you accommodate rising powers? Well, you kind of bring them to the table. And you agree on rules which will minimize your capacity to kind of bump into each other, spheres of influence or arms control, that kind of stuff. Well, those things matter. They're, again, you know, pretty important. Even something like spheres of influence is out there again. Um, but it can't be, possibly be enough. Because what you actually have to talk about, if you want to talk about stabilizing global finance or capitalism or whatever, is how do you organize things literally on the ground in your own countries. Um, George Bush, famously senior, when he went to Rio in 1992, said, well, in relation to climate change, um, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. But what globalization means is that all our ways of life, in some form or another, are up for globalization. And it's that intersection with, if you want, power politics, which is a big, I think, a game changer. A second sort of big post-Westphalian characteristic is, is what I think is a long-run shift in the nature and how increasing numbers of people think about um, political legitimacy. Um, the greater capacity to question existing governance structures, a greater capacity to organize uh, and to mobilize around to demands uh, for voice, around demands for different kinds of understandings about uh, human dignity. Um, that poses enormous challenges, particularly for all kinds of top-down modes of thinking about order. Um, thirdly, I think it's post-Westphalian in a kind of literally post-Westphalian sense that the Westphalian core, the Western core, is becoming, has become uh, provincialized. Now, of course, you can say that that core Western order has expanded, as John said. Um, it took in, it digested um, the rising Asian countries of the 1970s, the Knicks and so on. It did so, of course, importantly, within a Cold War context where the United States had an enormously powerful ideological geopolitical interest to digest those countries and to pay the price necessary, for example, to absorb the exports of the newly industrializing countries. Countries sort of outside that pose this question. Now, that question doesn't have to be posed as it often is in cultural, civilizational, non-Western terms. It might be posed in simply terms of countries that are in quite radically different places in their historical trajectories. Uh, countries at different stages of their uh, social political development have very different views about the nature um, of what they might want from the international system. Um, so the, the question of what sorts of things countries want when they are, no, they are on the margins or outside the margins of the traditional Western core is, as we've discussed and will carry on discussing, um, sort of central. Um, how do we think about how we got about the nature of you know, the problems we face? Well, I think one thing we're, we're all agreed on um, absolutely runs through almost everything John said uh, and is that we don't understand where we are in terms of some kind of 
trans-historical simple conflict over power, the kind of the neo-realist John Mearsheimian world, that that's what um, is going to bring conflict in the 21st century. I think there's very little there. Um, a great deal of what we're discussing is precisely the relationship between logics of interstate power and broader logics of want modernization and modernity. Um, the long-run liberal view that sort of holds that basically the liberal order is capable of absorbing and transforming itself um, rests and draws very powerfully, particularly on uh, 19th century European uh, liberal thinking, whether of the sort of the ideational, the normative kind, you know, under the banner of Kant, if you like, or of the more materialist kind, under the banners of both you want, Mill and, uh, and actually Marx, I think, lives there too. Um, there's a near-run history, which is worth, I think, just um, flagging for a moment, um, because it gets sometimes neglected, although I suspect it's going to come back. Um, we can almost begin to see it. Um, and that's the, the history that looks back to the 1970s. And it, why I say it's going to come back is I think it's pretty certainly we're going to have a lot of people looking around the emerging world, reading op-eds in the FT, seeing problems in India, Brazil, new crises in wherever, and saying, ah, oh, told you so. Um, the emerging world really doesn't add up to uh, very much. Um, this, of course, and then they'll say, you know, we heard all this story before, 1970s, rise of the third world, challenges, crisis of capitalism in the core, etc., 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 Western decline. Well, of course, it didn't happen. The United States reasserted itself, and we put all these places, if you like, in their place. Um, you can tell a different story of how we got from the 1970s to here. You can certainly tell a story that there were many similar aspects of the problem. Um, talk of Western and American decline, talk of the incapacity or the difficulties of using military power to secure political objectives, talk of casualty fatigue and the unwillingness of core countries to pay the price of global responsibilities, the rise of the south of the third world, the rise of new issues in which that third world becomes important, environment, nuclear weapons, you know, on and on and on economic crisis, failure of welfareism in the core, exactly you can tell those things. What happened? Well, the West, and particularly the United States and Europe, did reassert itself in two ways, through a very powerful opening up of a particular kind of globalization, particularly financial globalization, and secondly, through a very, very powerful and aggressive policy of intervention in many parts of the um, third developing world. Um, both of those things were enormously successful in the sense winning the Cold War. Both of those things, too, brought longer-run consequences and problems with which we are still living. So, of course, it was financial globalization which provided the framework for the system in which power shift. It's also, as I'll say in a minute, that mode of globalization which carries with it enormous instabilities and inequalities. And it was that phase of deep intervention and in many parts of the developing world, particularly the Islamic world, Afghanistan, across the Middle East, which has created many of the crises which so sap and pose such a problem and a challenge uh, to United States power today. So I think we do need to look to history. We don't need to say, ah, oh, some eternal logic of power makes great power conflict inevitable, but we do need to think about how particular phases of history feed in to where we are. Of course, you can still, as um, John explained, uh, have a 
large number of reasons for thinking, well, we shouldn't be too pessimistic. Um, John mentioned many of them, the pluralism of the Western order, easier to join, harder to dislodge, voice conflicts, authority conflicts rather than power conflicts. Um, you might add to that the sort of view, the Dan Dresner view, on the global economy. Well, of course, we did have a big financial crisis, um, but, and certainly, you know, all of the economists will tell you all of the you know, very significant losses involved. I mean, no one would pretend it was a great thing, but, you know, the old raw Eichen Green comparisons with the 1930s, it didn't do lots of the things that happened then. We didn't see this great wave of protectionism linking into geopolitics and nationalism and conflict. We didn't see a complete fall off the cliff of trade flows and investment flows and so on, quite the reverse. Actually, we've seen on a lot of the surveys support for economic globalization increase in all sorts of different parts of the world. So in the Dresdner line, the system worked. So a whole range of things many of which John mentioned, I think others one could add, um, that says, well, yeah, what's the problem? There really isn't a kind of global order crisis, a global governance crisis. So let me turn us to, to um, and just go quickly through uh, some of the reasons why the problem might be a little bit more serious, and particularly the ways in which there are things out there which might dislodge you know, some of the, the logics of, of the liberal order. And here I think that most of them really don't have that much to do with kind of geopolitics narrowly defined. I mean, whether you're talking about the incentives of rising powers to join, to lock in, to take advantage of the system, wanting openness, wanting institutions, or whether one, in a sense, are talking about the sort of longer run um, uh, way in which the political system, the geopolitical system, is kind of ordered, you know, at that level, that doesn't seem to me to be, you know, where the real difficulty is. So I, I sort of fully agree we're not in a kind of, you know, a, a, a realist sort of interstate great power accommodation problem, but we've got quite a long list of things which I fear have the capacity to mess things up. And let me run through those. Um, starting with democracy, um, well, you know, we could say, and democracy obviously matters. I mean, the, the, the great wave of democracy, the idea, not just that there's a, a kind of class of leading democracies which can form the, the core of a liberal order, but more and more states have kind of joined uh, the democratic club. Well, yes, um, some of that's true, um, but there's also a kind of gloomier side um, which says, look, despite an incredibly favorable historical conjuncture, US power, elaborate democracy promotion strategies, willingness to pay enormous costs for regime change, all sorts of structural incentives. Actually, the wave doesn't look that much like a wave anymore. The logic, the old sort of way of thinking of a kind of teleology of transition consolidation, it's sort of quite problematic to think in those ways. Of course you can sort of say these are sort of temporary problems along the road, but there are many, many new democracies which have either slipped back or perhaps more worryingly have kind of lodged themselves in a kind of, you know, rather stable, stable hybrid status where many of the expectations for greater inclusive governance, accountability, representation and so on seem uh, stymied. And at the same time where the wonders of the old democracy 
and the old democracies look a little less wonderful than they did in the days of democratization studies, where democratization studies was always comparing you guys to us scoring 10 out of 10 on you know, um, freedom rankings and so on. Well, we don't score 10 out of 10. And arguably, of course, the betrayal of many of those li liberal values by the core liberal states, not least in their willingness to violate human rights structurally in pursuit of their own national security goals has done enormous damage to that idea that there's a legitimate sort of liberal core. So the democracy thing, the sort of the possibility of sort of ongoing permanent, permanent hybrids um, rather than sort of states just on the road to being more consolidated democracies, I think is, is a, um, a little bit of a, um, a problem. Um, then there's capitalism. And here I sort of really do agree um, that it's Polanyi, not Carr. But I think Polanyi makes us worry, or should make us worry, um, rather um, a lot. I'm not a, in a position to talk about, in a sense, the near term, whether, in a sense, all of the near term problems of global imbalances and so on have been satisfactorily dealt with. I, as a complete outsider, that sounds I sound, I think, rather skeptically about those claims. I can see why nobody wants to go near global economic institutions and governance and New Britain Woods. But the idea that we can just sort of forget it seems a little bit far-fetched. And certainly if you come up with the long list or the rather long list of the things which global capitalism, for all its achievements, seems structurally rather incapable of facing up to, um, producing global public goods in a consistent way, undervaluing the welfare of future generations, dealing with, with, um, inequ uh, with inequality. Um, these seem pretty big things. And if we think back to how we thought about order in the mid-20th century, how the West dealt with the great calamities of disorder, the enormously destructive hugely destructive conflicts of the first half of the 20th century. Some of that was about kind of classic international relations, building multilateral institutions. A great deal of it, of course, was also about dealing with the Polanyan problem. And so this is the point that the welfare state was probably the greatest or one of the greatest geopolitical contributions of the 21st century. What the equivalent is, everyone, you know, many, many people are talking about, well, why isn't there this contemporary Polanyi moment pushing back against the instabilities of capitalism and so on and so forth. Well, that is and seems to me um, a problem uh, that has to be kind of fed in. Um, then thirdly, if you tie into that, what I call power diffusion sort of mark two, John alluded to this. So we think of power diffusion, obviously, in international relations in terms of power moving kind of from one group of states to another group of states. But there is, I think, and there's a long run uh, diffusion of power away from states towards societies, towards the empowering of all sorts of new actors, um, obviously bound up, but not reducible to uh, new technologies, to, if you like, the infrastructure of globalization, um, a capacity for those social changes to become very unpredictable, um, for things to happen in very unexpected ways, uh, Turkey, Brazil, and so on, much more Arab Spring in many ways was hugely overdetermined. Turkey, Brazil, much kind of less so. And this really matters for the sort of geopolitical view of the world, because one side 
of the optimism, maybe not of, 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 of sort of John's liberal optimism, but one way of sort of thinking about holding order together has always been this, well, the big powers must come together, sort of organize themselves, make sure they don't com conflict, and they can sort of run the world. Whereas running the world is not, well, maybe it's never been easy. It certainly isn't easy today. Those concert-type ways of thinking often drew very heavily on this idea that the threat and challenge came not just from geopolitics against each other, but from society. I mean, this, after all, was what a lot of the concert was about, 1848, etc. This is quite a lot of what détente was about in its classic days, you know, Jeremy Suri and that view of détente. Um, it's what I call the blindness of Dr. Kissinger. You can play the chessboard as brilliantly as you like, but Kissinger, of course, was absolutely blind to the reality and the unpredictability of social change and what that means for, uh, for international politics. Then fourthly, economic globalization, there are more specific things you can say. I don't have time to say many of them here. Um, but the point I would make is a lot of people lay great emphasis on inequality. And surely inequality of its different kinds is very important. But a lot of the kind of distributional analysis of winners and losers produces a picture of economic globalization, which again has a capacity to feed rather negatively into our view of a sort of stable global order. What do I mean by that? Well, the biggest bundle of winners is in that group very misleadingly called um, the new middle class, the 400 million people, 200 in China, 200 outside. They're not middle class. They're people who are now just outside real poverty, exposed to the market, but still maybe doing better, but still enormously vulnerable to market disturbances in a capacity to raise more demands against their states, many of those states being unable to meet those increased expectations. And then in the North, the biggest losers, as in a sense everybody knows, are that group of, again, whatever one calls it in different places, the lower middle class, which has moved down, which has seen its economic prospects, not just contingently, but arguably structurally change. Now, if you put those two groups together, you feed them in a capacity to mobilize, you feed in a world where governments are thinking about have, using nationalism to deal with some of their problems, that's a rather, you know, not a very comfortable, I think, mixture. So it's not just globalization doing well for people, and again, you can say globalization has done well for people, particularly for emerging powers, both as emerging powers and as emerging societies, but the distribution of winners and losers isn't necessarily or doesn't necessarily play happily into a kind of stable picture of global order. So what I've tried to do is to sort of say, well, it's not just accommodation in a power political sense. I do think that, in a sense, the logics, what ought to happen, if you like, about rising power seeing they have an interest in rules and openness, um, you know, existing states seeing they have an interest in co-optation, in adjustment, in giving greater voice. All of those things, I think, are there. But these various factors mess that up a bit, or at least have the capacity to mess it up. And maybe the ability to see these issues in quite those kind of rational terms um, can itself be messed up either by the claims that rising states make, not just for material benefits, but for recognition, for status, things which are inherently more zero-sum than simply the distribution of benefits. And on the part of the dominant states, and this to me is where a lot of the problem lies, the adjustment 
on the part particularly of the United States to a world in which it, it no longer has primacy, where the hegemonic presumption has passed, is something which I think for all sorts of historical reasons is something that, well, we, we yet have to see whether it is something that the United States foreign policy political culture is capable of doing. So some of it is a thing, is a difficulty about, from one side, what should we be asking from the system? And from the other side, what we should, what should we be paying for the price of accommodation? Um, but that calculation isn't purely a kind of rational calculation. Now, so finally, what, where does that, this leave us? Um, you can say it leaves us with a debate between the global order and some form of authoritarian alternative. Um, I agree with John, actually. I don't sort of see the authoritarian alternative. I do see quite a lot of scope for contestation about what rules-based and open means. I think there are definitely different kinds of liberal orders out there. There's one that's floating around many parts of the emerging world, which is much more strongly pluralist uh, than many people in the core Western countries feel very happy with, which lays much more emphasis on our capacity to hold you guys to account for the liberal things you say you want to do, but where we think, hmm, it's not obvious that you actually do want to do them. So we want to use our voice, our representation in reformed UN or whatever it might be, not just to contribute responsibly as you think we ought to do to this problem or that problem, but rather to hold you account for what you do when you talk about responsibly uh, running uh, the world. So there's a lot of scope, I think, within those rules, within that openness as to what a liberal order is. And I kind of think that the process side, giving up a capacity to control, allowing greater voice, is actually something even in the absence of sort of ideological alternatives, even if the bandwidth, the ideological bandwidth is much narrower, um, has a greater capacity to generate conflict than one might, again, rationally or logically think. And then my final point is what I guess I've tried to say is that this story isn't really one, I think, of, of um, you know, a logic, an eternal logic of power. There is a powerful set of arguments that say, you know, there are all sorts of incentives, there are all sorts of logics of shared values which ought to pull together. But there are a whole series of factors with a capacity to disrupt. Um, I think I probably bored many of you with, um, sort of inspired by reading the Edelman biography of Hirschman and then going back to Hirschman. Um, and sort of Hirschman has stuck with me a lot over the past nine months. Um, and what is there in, in Hirschman? One is this notion that kind of modernity, globalization, has this almost well, infinite, perhaps not, but very extended capacity to produce ongoing diversity. And secondly, even if one wants Hirschman's language to maintain the bias for hope, the capacity of complex social systems to produce unintended consequences, to go places that you don't expect, where the big kind of logics of history don't lead you, is almost infinite. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much, Andy. Um, we'll turn immediately to Kate, and I want to say thanks to both our uh, students here for agreeing to active discussions. <laughs> quite a, a quite a task. Okay, well, um, I say thank you to Professor Eichenberg and Professor Horrell for very good um, discussions. Um, so, firstly, in terms of the things that we heard from Eichenberg, so you were mentioning 
Well, you talked about primarily how deep the divides that we're talking about. And your argument is that these divides aren't particularly deep because it's fundamentally a struggle over authority rather than a struggle over values of the international order. And while fundamentally I generally agree with that, I think that we also need to consider how even a struggle for authority may impact upon the nature of the global order and threaten its liberal interests. Because, and also because the struggle for authority has, as one of its bases, the struggle for the ability to decide on things. And the reasons you want to have an ability to decide is, at least in part, that you would decide even slightly differently and certainly more in your own favour. And in a world where states are having this struggle for authority, even though they're not struggling over the core values, still has enormous impact on the possibility for cooperation and therefore for the maintenance of a global liberal order. Because you don't need to have a revolutionary, fully worked out plan for an alternative order in order to be able to threaten or complicate the existing order. You don't need to have the EHR moment. You were, as Professor Horrell was saying, there are lots of options for why the global liberal order could be contested, or you would simply have a failure to cooperate, fragmentation or regionalization. So secondly then, you argue that the success of the rising powers is as a result of the success of the global liberal international order. And while I agree with that, I don't necessarily then fully agree with the idea that it's therefore in the state's interest to maintain this global order and that they will therefore do so. Why? Firstly, because states don't always act in the wider long-term interests when particular short-term interests are at stake. So in a lot of your work, you mentioned China and how it is in China's interest in the long term to maintain a peaceful rise in order to not worry its neighbors. However, recent actions would state that China has a lot of difficulty in following that when it may contradict its short-term um, uh, or, or immediate interests, such as in the Senkakus. And how to mitigate that without having a hegemon or without having the ability for a hegemon to impose a global order becomes much more difficult. Secondly, while the developing states have certainly benefited from the liberal global order as it has existed, it is the perception that the United States has benefited more because it's been in the position to be able to have the kind of preferential opt-out that you've talked about. So as these states rise, they will say, well, yes, we've benefited from the global order in the position that we were, but now we're in a much higher position. We also want the same kind of possibility to opt out um, as the United States have. And that's much more difficult to manage in the global order when you're saying that there are multiple states who are demanding these privileges. Thirdly then, when discussing World Order 3.0, you're very confident of the ability to learn from previous success. So that, that we can have that both a flat hierarchy of World Order 1.0, but the much deeper governance and much deeper convergence on policy of 2.0. However, as mentioned by um, a lot of the stuff that Professor Horrell was saying, without this hierarchy, you do have much greater contestation of policy. So, for example, in the Senkakus, how to adjudicate this in a multipolar world is much more difficult. It's much more difficult to be able to say that there are, we're going to have these kind of governance policies when different states are in a much greater position to be able to negotiate, as you see with recent rounds in Doha, when you're talking about much greater policy cooperation and when states are in a position to be able to negotiate, it's much more difficult to then get the kind of cooperation that you want. And lastly, in talking about the human rights um, and the post-Westphalian conceptions of sovereignty, which are generally assumed, and particularly you advocate in your work in, a, in an ideal global order, would, would be, would be uh, maintained. But you also can see the consensus is more difficult to achieve that hierarchy. And therefore, I, I would argue that 
discussions over firstly when to intervene and who is the duty bearer would be far more difficult to establish in any world order which doesn't have a hegemon. And I would argue that actually this would probably mean less intervention and that in many ways, if we do have this global order emerging, we may have witnessed the human rights moment that is now on the ebb. And perhaps we see the beginnings of this in the international failure to respond in Syria. And maybe this is much more like the kind of cases that we're going to have in future than the ones that we witnessed in the 1990s or the early 2000s, and that the human rights moment has in fact passed. So those are my comments on that. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, finally, uh, right. Judy. Um, yes, well, thank you very much, um, Rosemary, Andy, and, and John, um, for having us here to, uh, to comment. Um, and it's not an easy task, <laughs> uh, especially, um, uh, and uh, especially never an enviable task when you're asked to, uh, to provide comments on your own um, thesis supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Always, always, always one Anyway, um, yes, I guess I, I want to, um, to start just by picking up on really this um, <laughs> always 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 a fun one anyway um, yes I guess I I wanted to um, to start just by picking up on really this um, this idea I think bringing together a lot of uh, what Professor Rackenberry and Professor Hurrell um, are uh, kind of where they are um, joined and where they are then diverging, I think, uh, raises for me principally, um, and I uh, wasn't quite uh, expecting or knowing that uh, Professor Hurrell was, um, was going to dwell on the economic globalization and, and, and uh, the crises of capitalism quite as much as he did. But I think that this is really the fault line that we, we must be uh, turning our attention to when we want to talk about what kind of global order is emerging at the moment, and especially out of uh, the last five years. Um, and it just struck me, uh, especially um, the main point, um, when you were describing Professor Eikenberry, uh, the old order um, and the way in which it has evolved and the reasons why it is more difficult uh, to, to leave and much easier to become kind of embraced uh, as a part of than any other um, previously. Um, I was just wondering why exactly that's not somehow attributable to the fact uh, that it is the first global capitalist order that we are now witnessing in, in, in global history, rather than necessarily some idea of a global liberal order. Because there are, built into the way in which you progress your argument, um, there are a number of, of course, qualifications uh, to what we might traditionally understand as liberalism, um, uh, traditionally in, in, in the history of Western uh, political philosophy. Um, and so, and that's perfectly maybe valid um, to say, well, of course, this idea of the global liberal order as we have constructed it out of the West uh, is something that is, is, is not pure and complete in, in, in every respect. But the question is then still begged for me at least um, why it is that uh, why, why it is that necessarily this has to be characterized as always. Uh, a liberal order rather than um, a capitalist order. And for me at least, uh, liberal capitalism um, and democratic liberal capitalism as it has been kind of constructed in uh, the Anglo-American um, political economies uh, is not necessarily something that we can assume is going to be uh, eternally valid um, or, or um, universal 
um, going forward. And of course, this is where we bring in uh, the idea of, of China. Um, whilst I certainly would not subscribe to kind of Ian Bremmer's conception of you know, state capitalism um, uh, as fundamentally posing a challenge to, to everything that the United States represents and the, and the, and the order that it has constructed. Um, certainly the idea uh, that as the malleability of these institutions that you describe as constituting the basis of the current global order, it is adaptable, it is resilient, it is flexible. Uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, the United Nations, so many of these that's, that's fine, but they can also accommodate um, a form of capitalist development. And I would argue then, and this is where I'll kind of transition to, to, to talking a little bit about Professor Harrell's comments, um, they would also accommodate a particular conception of global order, which is distinctively capitalist, but perhaps not as liberal um, as uh, you might argue. Um, so. Yeah, it's, um, I guess my position in that sense is that the challenge that we, we can identify posed by China's engagement with the global order um, is, and this comes back to what, what Professor Harrell was talking about, uh, with the ways in which the architects uh, and the, the sources of global liberal order have in so many ways betrayed um, these classic liberal principles. Um, I would say that it's a challenge to, in some ways, the fiction of a liberal order. And it is engaging with what we should identify as a very uh, resilient and adaptable global capitalist order. Um, but the, exactly where we locate its distinctive liberalism as it is evolving into the future is something that I'm still not wholly convinced of. And you do mention, you know, it, it, it becomes a very slippery concept um, when we try and talk about uh, the institutional breakdown and the principles and the norms that are fundamentally underpinning them. Um, so from that perspective, um, I think that, um, yeah, um, the, the, the idea of liberal and, uh, liberalism and capitalism um, together um, needs to be kind of fleshed out conceptually um, in many ways. And I think that then brings us to the point about where, um, as, I was, uh, as I started, the idea of where these fault lines uh, are now uh, emerging um, in terms of the Westphalian norms, the, 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 the great power politics that are emerging in a post-Westphalian context. And I would argue, um, and these are always the moments where you realize why exactly you picked a particular professor to be your uh, thesis supervisor, but I would, I would argue that uh, much of this we can see coming out of uh, the ways in which states are trying to reassert authority uh, in this global capitalist system in response to the fact that they have been able, unable to provide those liberal promises, that they've been unable to uh, fulfill those objectives, those liberal objectives that they, that we, and this is why I keep on returning to this idea of the fictional liberal order, that states have been promising that all of this global architecture institution building has been premised on something which states as global capitalism has evolved have not really been able to deliver on in the way that we as citizens as subjects ostensibly expect them to and that is why even as we see this tension between an architecture which is supposedly premised on universal principles 
rules-based, multilateral, you know, we, we all acknowledge that it doesn't actually work in that way as well, as effectively, or as often as we would like. And the great power politics, the, the, the return of these, um, the return of power politics within these institutions that we can see after, as you were saying, you know, the, the, these ideas of the human rights movement, the idea of liberal solidarism, um, solidarity being, being kind of universalized. After this has passed over the past 15 years, um, I would argue this is why we are seeing a return to contestation and, 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 and potentially conflict over the distributional costs of adjusting to an increasingly unstable and increasingly unsustainable environmentally and social, socially global capitalist system. Um, and that, I think, is why um, we would find this disjuncture between the efforts of, of states to not only reconcile these perhaps somewhat you know, outdated from a liberal sense um, Westphalian norms with the demands of citizens who are capable of mobilizing, of exercising their rights, so to speak, um, and their supposedly liberal rights um, in an increasingly globalized capitalist system. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Julian.